A judge blocks striking workers in Yellowknife from picketing their workplaces. Manitoba's child poverty rate is the worst in Canada. Federal money for oil remediation has mostly gone to private companies. A former JT2 sniper goes on a U.S. podcast, gives the Canadian military a headache. And Pablo Neruda was poisoned. Good morning. It's Friday, February 17th. I'm Nora coming to you from snowy, snowy Quebec City. And here are your headlines. This morning, we start in Yellowknife. Members of the Union of Northern Workers have been out on strike since February 8. They went on strike hours before the city threatened to lock them out. Despite having been negotiating since May, the two sides have not been able to come to an agreement. The workers have not had a collective agreement since 2021. All the city is offering in terms of salary is a raise of 2%, and the workers want 5% for 2022 and 3% for 2023. Shockingly, the city sought a court injunction that will restrict the striking workers' right to picket their workplaces. Emily Blake from the Canadian Press reports that Justice Andrew Mahar of the Northwest Territory Supreme Court allowed the injunction. For the next 10 days, union members are not allowed to stop access to sites where the city operates. Blake writes that this includes public installations like pools, the curling club, solid waste facilities, and so on. The limit of workers who are allowed to picket these locations is just six, and they aren't allowed to, quote, convey information, unquote, for more than 10 minutes. The city argued that forcing people to wait before entering a space might cause, quote, irreparable harm, unquote. We can see maybe why negotiations are not going so well with folks like that at the city of Yellowknife. Basically, the judge has neutered the most effective pressure tactic that striking workers have. What that injunction sets up is a showdown between the striking workers and the law. PSAC president, and PSAC is the parent union of the Union of Northern Workers, he was in Yellowknife and vowed to fight the injunction. But make no mistake, this is a very worrisome decision for a judge to interfere in workers' rights like this. It ratchets up tensions, and for what? To give the city a break from their own staff? And now to Manitoba, where a new report from Campaign 2000 has found that Manitoba's child poverty rate is the worst in Canada. 20.68% of Manitoba children, or nearly 65,000 children, live in poverty. That's 7.21% higher than the national average. In an article from CTV Winnipeg by Mason DePatie, it quotes many anti-poverty activists like Josh Brandon from the Social Planning Council of Winnipeg, who said, quote, we know that the solutions are there, the resources are available, we're just not targeting them well, and as a result, children are falling through the cracks. The Minister of Families, Rochelle Squires, says that the 2023 budget will put money towards lifting people out of poverty. We'll have to watch for that, though I don't think anybody should be holding their breath. Now to an investigation from the Narwhal. In 2020, the federal government announced an oil and gas cleanup program. The government dedicated $1.7 billion to Alberta, Saskatchewan, and British Columbia. The Narwhal has crunched some numbers and found two companies were given 44% of all spending in Alberta. CNRL, which is the largest oil and gas company in Canada, 
they got at least $172 million, and Synovus got almost $66 million. Reminder that at least four CNRL workers died from COVID-19 that they got while working on the job. Drew Anderson reports that the City of Medicine Hat and IPC Canada Limited were the next big winners, getting $22 million and $18 million, respectively. Anderson writes, quote, There is no public data on which companies received money for the first three granting periods, accounting for approximately $416 million in spending. The other two granting periods gave money directly to First Nations and Métis communities to pay for cleanup on their lands, and the figures don't include how much went to each oil and gas company. If you want to see the list of groups who did receive money, you can check them out at the investigation directly as they've made a scrollable link. If you think back to the beginning of this program, Justin Trudeau promised that the money would go towards hiring workers who'd be able to clean up so-called orphan wells. Orphan wells are wells where the owner won't or can't or doesn't pay to clean them up. They're a big problem in Alberta. There's more than 7,000 orphan well sites waiting to be decommissioned or go through environmental remediation, reports Anderson. On top of that, there are 170,000 abandoned wells. The program missed the target of the number of jobs it was supposed to create. It created 4,700 temporary jobs, not 5,300, but it has overseen the completion of work at almost 32,000 sites. Now, I want to pause here and mention that Anderson does what all journalists should do when reporting about a large corporation, though most do not. Anderson included how much money the companies made last year. I stopped myself from looking it up when I started reading this article because knowing the NARL's work, I figured it would be included. And it is. CNRL has more than 22,000 inactive wells. They made $2.8 billion net revenue in third quarter 2022 alone. Although a little tip in the article, it just says earnings, which always begs the question, are we talking about net earnings or gross earnings? This is the net earnings figure, though I did double check with CNRL's website to make sure it was net. So net $2.8 billion in profits. Their 2022 profits are up 127% from 2021 of, I'm guessing, the same period. There's a lot more in the investigation, so I do encourage you to check it out. Next, another story from David Palazzi this morning, the Ottawa Citizen. David, I'm going to have to buy you a coffee for all of your work someday. David has a scoop that the Canadian military has called for an American podcaster to remove parts of an interview he did with a former Joint Task Force 2 commando named Dallas Alexander. He also posted classified video, quote, of a long-range sniper shot in Iraq, and the military wants it taken down because, quote, it could harm this country's national security. The podcaster, an American named Sean Ryan, had Alexander on to talk about the time he spent in the counterterrorism unit base in Ottawa and that time he killed someone from the Islamic State in 2017. The podcast included video of the killing, Pulezi reports. The video was never authorized to be posted publicly. Ryan said that he removed it, but it's already been copied numerous times and republished elsewhere. Pelezi writes, quote, The Canadian Forces has previously acknowledged a Special Forces sniper conducted the shot from more than 3,500 metres away, but it has declined to release any further information. Pause here. Sorry. We're talking about a sniper shot of... 3,500 meters away. I mean, that is pretty incredible. 
I'll continue with the quote. The shot is considered a world record for a sniper. JTF-2 continually refuses to acknowledge many aspects of its operations and equipment, claiming the release of such information could help enemy forces, unquote. I'll add a little anecdote here. I was at a party once and I met someone who worked for the Air Force. I had really basic questions about helicopters and also I was trying to make, you know, conversation. The guy refused to tell me anything, including how far does a helicopter go on a single tank of gas? Sorry, he told me that is classified. Alexander left JTF2 because he refused to be vaccinated. The Ottawa Citizen reported that two serving members of JTF2 were under investigation for having participated in the trucker convoy last year. Palazzi notes that this unit is the one that, quote, would be called upon to deal with terrorism and at times provides protection for VIPs such as the prime minister. Ten members of the Canadian Special Operations Command left because they refused to be vaccinated. And finally, it seems like we are closer to knowing what actually killed Pablo Neruda. The Nobel Prize winning poet died after having been poisoned. For years, it's been rumored that he was murdered. The official version of his death, reports The Guardian, was that he died from prostate cancer and malnutrition right after the coup that overthrew Chile's socialist president, Salvador Allende. Neruda was a friend of Allende and a staunch critic of Augusto Pinochet. Test results released this past week showed that botulism was in Neruda's body when he died. Researchers had to test to see if the botulism had entered his body after tests ran at McMaster University and the University of Copenhagen confirmed that the botulism did not come from his coffin or surrounding area. That is all for Friday, February 17th. I'm Nora, and I just want to say I got an email from a listener who said that he preferred to hear my commentary over me doing straight news. It's been a long-running personal joke for me that people are always surprised when they hear me do what sounds like straight news. And I would love to hear other people's comments. Now, this episode, these episodes, unlike Sandy and Nora, they're fully scripted, which means that I actually write out what I say. Sandy and Nora, not at all scripted and barely planned. Now, when you're doing news, you have to script it because you can't say the wrong thing. There are many mornings where I go back and I've gotten the name of a cabinet position wrong or the name of some little detail wrong, and I have to go back and I record it. Because of that, it makes this podcast very newsy. I'd love to hear what you think. I'm always happy to add a little bit more of my opinion into the stuff. But really, if you read through the lines and you hear what stories I've chosen, you should be able to get what I think of them. Anyway, I love the feedback. Thank you for asking that question or for giving me that feedback. And I really hope you all have a wonderful snowy or maybe not so snowy weekend.